If you have your Bible with you today, I'd like you to turn with me to the Gospel of Luke. We will be in Luke chapter 16, and we will begin in verse 19. Luke chapter 16 and verse 19. And today we're going to say the account that Jesus told of the rich man and Lazarus. The rich man and Lazarus. Now, if you've been following along in our our study of the Gospel of Luke, you remember we started way back in chapter 1 and verse 1, and we've gotten to the end of uh, chapter 16. And um, you might remember chapter 15 had three parables, and they all had a common theme that ran through them. And that common theme was this. uh, Something valuable was lost, and someone went searching for it, found that valuable thing, and then there was great rejoicing. And that was a picture of of God seeking the sinner and the rejoicing that goes on in heaven uh, when that person is saved. Now you get to chapter 16, and it's something very similar in the sense that there are three teachings that have a common theme that run through them. So the first part of chapter 16, we have the parable of the unrighteous or unfaithful steward. And Jesus told about a man who was uh, mismanaging his, his master's uh, wealth and, and estate. And he ended up getting kicked, out of, um, getting kicked out of his job. And what he did was he made the most of his opportunity and, and obligated people to himself so that whenever his, uh, his wealth failed, they would welcome him into their homes. Then Jesus told, uh, gave a teaching that, uh, that you cannot serve two masters, and, and he said that the things that people uh, value, the things that, that, that man esteems, are detestable in the sight of God. He doesn't look on the outside like we do, he looks on the heart. And so then we get to the end of chapter 16, and this too deals with, uh, with riches and things of that nature. And he's going to tell a story about a rich man and a poor man. And it's a story of contrast, it's a story of, of, of great reversals, I guess you'd say. And it's, it's a tale not of two cities, but of two men who had very different lives and very different destinies. They spend their eternities, uh, one of them spends it in God's presence, the other spends it eternally separated from the goodness of God in hell. It's, it's a sobering message, but it is a valuable one. So if, if you found uh, Luke chapter 16, I'd like you to stand with me in honor of God's word if you're able. We'll pick up in verse 19 and read down to the end of the chapter. It says, Now there was a rich man, and he habitually dressed in purple and fine linen, joyously living in splendor every day. And a poor man named Lazarus was laid at his gate, covered with sores, and longing to be fed with the crumbs which were falling from the rich man's table. Besides, even the dogs were coming and licking his sores. Now the poor man died and was carried away by the angels to Abraham's bosom, and the rich man also died and was buried. In Hades he lifted up his eyes, being in torment, and saw Abraham far away and Lazarus in his bosom. And he cried out and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me, and send Lazarus so that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool off my tongue, for I am in agony in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that during your life you received your good things, and likewise Lazarus bad things. But now he is being comforted here, and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us and you there is a great chasm fixed, so that those who wish to come over from here to you will not be able, and that none may cross over from there to us. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, that you send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, in order that he may warn them, so that they will not also come to this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. But he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. But he said to him, If they do not listen to Moses and the prophets... They will not be persuaded, even if someone rises from the dead. Thank you. You may be seated. Now, the text starts out by telling us about two men who lived two very different lives. 
Two very different lives. If you look back at verse 19, there was a rich man. Now, this man had an abundance of money. He was wealthy. I mean, he would have had a, a, a nice home. He probably had servants. He, he wore stylish designer clothes. Verse 19 says that, that habitually, daily, he dressed in fine purple linen. Now, that's significant because purple was, was, was pretty exclusive. Now, there are times, like if you go to buy a car, have you noticed they charge you a different amount depending on the color of paint that you get? And it drives me crazy because it doesn't cost any more to make red paint than it does uh, blue paint, for instance. But they'll charge you a different amount. Well, back then, purple was extremely expensive, not because it was in style or not because of, of anything like that, but because they had to work extremely hard to get the dye that makes stuff purple. And because of that, because of all the labor that was involved in the, in the materials and things like that, the only people that could afford purple material were the extremely wealthy and royalty. And so when this man is, is, is wearing this, this royal, uh, this color, this, this purple, this is extremely expensive stuff. And it wasn't just a, a cotton t-shirt he was wearing. You'll notice it says that he was wearing fine linen. Now the linen back then, there, there was some Egyptian linen that the ancients uh, described as being like woven air. I mean, this was fine stuff. So he's wearing these, these designer clothes. He, it's, it's super expensive stuff. And he's not doing it just on his birthday. He's not doing it when he takes the wife out for an anniversary uh, meal. It says that he does this daily, regularly, habitually, day in, day out, seven days a week. He's wearing the best stuff you can wear. And on top of that, he has the nicest food you can have because it says that he feasted scrumptiously. That's, that's one of the old translations. That's the way it reads. He, he, was, he had this lavish meal laid out before him. Now, back when Scarlett and I got married, we were poor. And I'm not saying that we were a little poor. I mean, we were, we didn't have two nickels rubbed together. And so what the meal consisted of at, at our house sometimes was ramen noodles. And that was back when they were even cheaper than they are now. That, that was back when they were 10 cents a pack. Yeah. Yeah, it was, those were good days as far as the price goes. I mean, ramen noodles and hot dogs. And it wasn't even the all beef ones. It was, it was the leftovers. You know what I'm talking about, right? And then we had Tostino's pizzas. And we had, I, I had lunch meat from Aldi's. I mean, it was not feasting foods. That was not what this guy was having. There was no ramen noodles on his plate. He was having the porterhouse and caviar daily. Again, this wasn't just for the anniversary meal. This wasn't just for the birthday meal. This was on a daily basis. You walked into his house and you'd be hit with all the aromas of, of, of delicious foods cooking and they'd be spread out before him daily every single day now from the outside looking in you'd say that is the man that is blessed by god look at all the stuff that he has look at how god has richly bestowed all these things upon him now notice the bible does not say that he got his wealth by graft there was no theft no robbing no oppressing the poor he wasn't eating foods that were off limits he wasn't having pork chops um he, he wasn't having shellfish or anything like that he was he was keeping the dietary laws it appears he was not breaking the fast the you know on the regular fast days he wasn't doing any of that stuff and from the outside looking in he was keeping his nose clean you would say not only is this man blessed by god he's virtuous that's what you would say if you were looking on the outside he had all the things that man sees as valuable and in that same place there's a poor man named lazarus his name means god helps and this poor man is named, but the rich man's not. Now, the rich man traditionally, does anybody know what his traditional name is? 
It's dives. Not because he dives down, but the, the Latin word for rich man is dives. And so that's what he's traditionally being called. And we don't know if this is a parable or if this is history. If it's a parable, that's the only time Jesus told a parable where he actually names one of the characters. If it's history, it's something that did happen. If it's a parable, it's something that could happen. Either way, the lesson's the same. So this poor man, he didn't live across the globe from the rich man. He didn't even live in the same town. He was lying at this rich man's gate. He was lying at the doorway. He, the, the, the rich man, if he went in and out of his house, he was walking right by Lazarus. Lazarus had nobody to care for him. If you look at verse 20, you'll notice it says that, that he was laid, that the, a poor man named Lazarus was laid at his gate, covered with sores. He, he was evidently lame. He, didn't, he couldn't get around from point A to point B on his own. He had to depend on others to take him. And that word that's translated as laid literally means to throw. He was thrown down. Now, these would have been his friends and, and relatives. He didn't have anybody to care for him. They, they, they would throw him away carelessly. They'd throw him down like a piece of trash and leave him at the gate. This man was in a bad, bad place. He didn't have any family or friends that evidently cared about him. They, they just dump him at the gate and leave him. This rich man, he's clothed in fine linen, very expensive stuff. Lazarus was, clo- was clothed in sores. This man, he, he never had a, a hungry day in his life. He was eating, filling his belly. And the Bible says that Lazarus desired. The, the word that's used is the same word that's used of the prodigal. You remember he got out into the far country and he began to starve to death. And the Bible says that he, he was so hungry that he would have fain, he would have been happy, he would have jumped at the chance to eat while the pigs were eating. That's the same word that's used of Lazarus. So not only is he covered in sores, these open, weeping wounds all over his body. He didn't have anybody that cared for him in this world. But he was so—he was literally starving to death at this rich man's doorway. And this rich man has so much food, he can't eat it all. And if you were to look on the outside, just by appearances, you would say Lazarus was cursed by God. I mean, it says even the dogs came and were licking his sores. Even the dogs showed more mercy than his friends or family or this rich man. As one author put it, this was a touching act of brute pity in the absence of human relief. Because what does a dog do when it gets hurt? It licks its wounds. So here's this man, he's lying at the, at the doorway of, of the rich man. And the dogs would come and, and they showed him some pity. But even, even that would have hurt because he has these open wounds and those rough, the, the rough tongues of the dogs would have been, would have been scraping on that. So this... This would have been a terrible condition to be in. And on the outside looking in, it seems like Lazarus is the one that's forsaken by God. He has nothing in this world. So we have two very different lives. And I want you to see we also have two very different deaths. Because as happened to everybody, the poor man died. Verse 22. It says, Now the poor man died and was carried away by the angels to Abraham's bosom. And the rich man also died and was buried. Notice it does not say that the poor man was buried. No doubt he was because they couldn't just leave a corpse laying out. You know, so, so they would have buried him, but it would have been a, a pauper's burial. They would have taken him out to the, the potter's field. There, there Probably nobody showed up for the funeral. They just take him out, bury him, and that was it. And notice what it says, though, that when he died, there was no processional through the streets, but there was a processional into the presence of God. The angels carried his soul 
to Abraham's bosom, to heaven. It was the place of blessedness. It, it was paradise. And the rich man also died and was buried. See, his, his money, his lavish lifestyle, they failed him. Because no matter how much money you have, one day you will die. No matter how little money you have, one day you will die. And so they, they, they would have, his, his name would have been in the papers. If you read the obituary column, Lazarus wouldn't have even shown up. You read the obituary column, there would be a big section about this benefactor of, of many organizations that, were, that, that died this week. Here's this rich man. He, 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 his name would have made the papers. There would have been a processional. That, you know, in, in, can I tell you something that really annoys me? When high-profile people die, they have the news crews come. And they have the rich people come. And they, they have the, the celebrities come. And they'll speak a few words. So they'll, they'll eulogize whoever it is. That really bothers me. Because there are all kinds of people who, who, who have lived and died and have, have made a, just as big an impact on the world and nothing. But that's beside the point. This is a man who probably had the guest speaker show up and eulogize his passing. They would have had news crews there. If they would have had cameras and, and, and things like that, they would have been streaming this stuff on the Internet. I mean, this was somebody that everybody knew about. There was a processional. People would have been taking, men would have been stopping their work and taking off their hats. Two very different deaths. And finally, I want you to see two very different eternities. Look at verse 23. In Hades, your Bible may translate that as in hell, he lifted up his eyes, being in torment, and saw Abraham far away and Lazarus in his bosom. Two very different eternities. This rich man closed his eyes in this life and he opened them in hell. Verse 23 says that he lifted up his eyes in Hades. Now Hades is, is the, the Greek word that's used there and, and the word Hades means the realm of the dead. But he speaks, it speaks of him being in torment. This is, this is what we call hell. It's a place of pain and torment both internally but also externally. This is a, this is a horrific fate to, to experience. Notice there's no soul sleep. There's no annihilation. There's no, there's no reprieve. There's no purgatory. There's no second chances. The decisions that are made in this life are finalized at death. Now I want you to see some of the elements of this torment that he's in. The first element of this torment is in verse 23. He looked and he could see into paradise. Abraham's bosom. This man forever could see what he was missing. Forever he could see what he was missing out on. Forever he could see the joys and the comforts and the pleasures of the redeemed. And forever he would know he was shut out of the kingdom. There was no other, there, there's no, no, no other chance. And he cries out, verse 24, Father Abraham. Again, he's counting on his heritage. He's not relying on the Lord, he's relying on lineage. And he, he calls out, Father Abraham. He doesn't say, God have mercy on me. He says, Abraham have mercy on me. And it may be that some of you are relying not on the Lord, but on your lineage. You're counting on something besides God to get you to heaven. It may be that you come from good stock. You know, that you come from a good family. You've been raised in a godly home. You, you have godly friends, godly parents. You got taken to, to, to church and Sunday school when you were younger. You may have preachers in your family. That will not save you. Your lineage will not save you. Your heritage will not save you. And notice verse 24. Again, the rich man doesn't call on God for mercy. 
He calls on somebody else. He's still counting on something besides God. Now there's a popular idea floating around even amongst Christians that, that sometimes God sends people to hell who desperately want to get to heaven. And that if, if, if they're there long enough, those people would repent. They would, if, if God would just give them a chance, they would, they would repent of their sins. They would turn to God in faith. And, but, but God's just so mean that He won't do that. But notice that's not the case that we see here. Notice, notice there's no change. Look at verse 24. The man didn't call out to God. He was not repentant for his sin. He didn't show any interest in being in the place of the redeemed. He had no desire to be in God's presence. All he did was wanted relief from his agony. Verse 25. He didn't see Lazarus any different. He didn't say, oh, man, I really, I really failed. Here was this man who I, I should have helped. I had opportunity to help and I didn't do it. No, instead he saw Lazarus as being a messenger boy that Abraham could send to do him a favor. Verses 28 and 30. The most charitable reading of that is that he cared for his family, didn't want them to suffer. A less charitable reading of that is that I don't think God's done enough to warn them. You need to have, Abraham, you need to have Lazarus go from the dead. He hasn't done enough. The unre- unrepentant sinner in this life will be unrepentant in the life to come. Why? Because the only way for an unrepentant sinner to, have, uh, to, to get saved is for God to change the heart. And God's not going to change the heart in hell. It doesn't happen after death. This man and all sinners who go to hell are are solidified in their rebellion against God. That's what we see with this man. But he calls out to Father Abraham, and he asks him that, that, that Lazarus could provide him with just a drop of water for his parched tongue. Now, I've been thirsty before, and I've had times when I really wanted a big glass of water, even just a little sip. But I've never been in such agony, and I've never been so thirsty that just one drop of water would make me happy. But that's what this man was. And here we have the second element of his suffering, and that's physical pain. The, the Bible pictures hell, the place of the condemned, with flame. Now, we've all been burned. And we know how much it hurts. We know the extreme, excruciating pain of fire. And we're constrained here by the, limits of, of, uh, the, the limitations of language. Because... The, the, the Bible uses the most painful image that, that, that can be employed as a picture of the horrific suffering of those in hell. We have this, this terrible pain that's, that's coming from the outside. And there's, it's so extreme that there's a longing for just one moment, one second of the smallest bit of temporary relief. And that doesn't come. And that's the third element of the suffering, this unfulfilled desire. There's no relief. There's no reprieve. There's no lessening of the pain for eternity. For eternity. The long ages stretch on. And there's no lessening of the pain. Abraham tells him, remember. Remember, verse 25. Child, remember. And that's the fourth element of the suffering. For all eternity, the clear, flawless memory of a wasted life. Memory of opportunities to repent that have been spurned. Memories of of times when, when your friend tried to have a conversation with you about spiritual things and you wouldn't have any of it. 
You made fun of them. Those memories of, of being told the truth and you shun God's love. Being, being given the offer of forgiveness and not, and not taking it. A memory of moment after moment. These things happening. And you're not taking advantage. Specifically, he says, remember the, 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 in life you had good things, but Lazarus had bad. And he's comforted while you are in agony. Now listen. Having good things in life or having bad things in life does not get you into heaven or hell. That's not what determines it. But if you set your heart on those things that, 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 that you've been given and you put your trust in those things, you're a lover of money, as, as Jesus termed earlier in chapter 16, if you're trusting in the uncertainty of riches and wealth, that will lead to perdition. As surely as the sun rises in the east and sets in the west. And memory is a powerful thing. Sometimes a memory will hit us out of nowhere, doesn't it? And it can, and, and it, it can be such a powerful thing. We can be, maybe we're having a conversation about something and all of a sudden our, 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 our sense just trails off because we've gone to some, someplace else. We can be driving down the road. We can be looking at old pictures and, and, and those memories can be so powerful. And they're going to be a powerful thing in eternity, both in heaven and in hell. In heaven we'll forever marvel that God has saved a sinner like me. And we'll think about all those times when we've, when we've been disobedient to God, when we've, when we've failed, when we've not lived up to what God commanded. And yet God showed us His mercy, He showed us His grace, and we'll forever praise Him for that. While at the same time, those in hell will, will remember His goodness and grace as well. That the, they didn't respond positively to, they rejected it. They, they, they rejected heaven's king. They'll remember that they heard this sermon. If, 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 if you end up going to hell, you will hear this sermon again, I believe. As you, as you hear the truth that's told to you, if you reject it, that will be a memory. These people will remember sitting up alone late at night in the hotel room. They can't sleep. The condition of their soul is on their mind. They, they don't know where to turn. TV's not doing it, you know, drugs, alcohol, whatever it is. That's not cutting it. They, they, they look and they see there's a Gideon's Bible sitting there on the nightstand. They begin to look through the Bible. Maybe God will speak to me out, out of His Word. And they'll come across Matthew 11. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in spirit, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Or they'll remember hearing John 3.16. And they'll turn to that passage and they'll read that, that God so loved the world that they gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believes in Him will not perish but have everlasting life. Or maybe they turn to the end of the book and see Revelation 22.17. The Spirit and the Bride say, Come. And let the one who hears say, Come. And let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who wishes to take the water of life without cost. And they'll hear these things, they'll remember these things, for eternity, and know they spurn God too long, they send away their day of grace, and they are forever in hell. The fifth element that we see in the suffering is the knowledge that their fate is sealed. Their fate is sealed. They can't get out. Verse 26, Abraham says, Between us and you there is a great chasm fixed, so that the one who would wish to come over 
from here to you may uh, cannot, and vice versa. In other words, once you're there, you're there. There's no escape hatch. There's no going across to heaven. Nobody from heaven's going to be coming to, to, to your aid. There's no glimmer of hope. Hell is a place devoid of hope. I mean, even in our worst days, even in our lowest depression, we know in the back of our minds that things can possibly change. We may not believe that they will, but we know that it is possible. In hell, there's no glimmer of hope. There's no ray of sunshine. There's no kindness, no joy. It's simple, utter despair, hopelessness for eternity. And the story ends with Dives begging for Lazarus to be resurrected and sent to his father's house because he has five brothers that he once warned. Abraham's response is, they have scripture. They have Moses and the prophets, what we call the Old Testament. Let them believe it. The Bible sufficiently warns about the peril of your soul if you do not repent. And if you will not believe that the testimony of God is recorded in Scripture, you would not believe if somebody rose from the dead and warned you in person. You won't do it. Because Jesus gave... Here's how amazing this is. Here's this conversation between Abraham and, and Dives about Lazarus. And Dives says... Send Lazarus from the dead to warn my brothers. And, and Abraham says, if they won't believe the, the scriptures, they won't believe if, if one even comes from the dead. John chapter 11, what does Jesus do? He raises a man named Lazarus from the dead. Not the same guy, but same name. Now, did many people believe? Yes, but if you'll read closely, it goes on to say that many of the, the chief priests and the Pharisees, this raising him from the dead... It didn't cause them to say, oh, well, what must we do to be saved? Instead, John chapter 11 says that the chief priests and the Pharisees, it accelerated their plans to kill Jesus and Lazarus. Because John chapter 12, verses 9 to 11 says, The large crowd of the Jews then learned that he, speaking of Jesus, was there. And they came, not for Jesus' sake only, but that they might also see Lazarus, whom he raised from the dead. But the chief priests planned to put Lazarus to death also, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. And Jesus provided the ultimate example that people will not believe. If they don't believe the scriptures, they won't believe no matter what they see by rising from the dead himself. John chapter 5, verses 39 and 40. Jesus said, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. It is these that testify about me. And you are unwilling to come to me so that you may have life. These men had the scriptures. They knew the scriptures. They, they believed that they trusted the scriptures. And yet here's this one that the, the, the Messiah was right before them. The scriptures pointed to and they refused to believe. If you won't believe the Bible, you won't believe anything. You, you, won't, you won't believe it even if somebody were to walk through that door right now and tell you about heaven and hell. You wouldn't do it. And the same is true today. You have the scriptures. You have not just the Old Testament that that they had. You have the New Testament as well. You have a fuller picture of the Messiah and Jesus and his work on the cross. You have a better picture of that than they did because you have a fuller account. The scriptures all point to him. The Bible is all about Jesus. And sometimes people say, well, you know, if, if God would just give me a sign. You ever prayed that? God, if you want me to, if you want me to become your child, please just send me a sign. 
Just, just show me, God. Just speak from the heavens. Just, just tell me in some way. If you won't believe the scriptures that God sent down from heaven, if the Bible isn't enough, even if He gave you a sign that said your name on it, you wouldn't believe it. Because Jesus rose from the dead. If you won't believe that as it's recorded in scripture, you wouldn't believe anything. He gave them this. He, these people wanted that. They, they said, they, they told Jesus, give us a sign. Jesus gave them the sign of Jonah. He rose from the dead. They didn't believe it. They sought to kill Jesus' followers because they were following after him. Today, each of us is faced with a choice. Are you going to believe on Christ for salvation? Maybe you've already done that. Listen. Continue trusting Christ. He is the one and only way that you can be saved. And, and the saving faith is a faith that keeps looking to Christ. Listen, money is not going to save you. Maybe, maybe you've never accepted Christ as your Savior. Your money is not going to save you. Your lack of money is not going to save you. Don't think that if you just give up everything and you become poor like Lazarus, that that will be a magic ticket to get you to heaven. It won't. Your charitable giving won't save you. Church membership will not save you. Heritage will not save you. Lineage will not save you. Good works will not save you. Coming to church and going to Bible school and and Sunday school and and all the rest won't save you. The only thing that will save you is Jesus Christ. And today, if you hear His voice, the Bible says, don't harden your heart. Don't trust in riches. Don't trust in anything other than Jesus. Because one day, you will go the way of all the earth. It's appointed unto man once to die and after that the judgment. I will die. You will die. We've all been to a funeral. That person, they may have expected to die. They may have been expected to die. Or they may not have. None, none of us has any idea how long we have. And that's why, while it's still called today, while we have a choice, while we have a chance, take advantage of it. Don't send away your day of grace. Don't, don't spurn God. Because you will breathe your last one day. And that's why it's so urgent that while it's called today, while there's opportunity, come to Christ for salvation. The Bible says, seek God while He may be found. And you, there's no magic formula. There no, there's not a, a, a certain secret prayer you have to pray. Right where, even right where you are, I'd, be, I'd love to talk to you after the service. But even right where you are, if you will just speak to God, you say, well, I don't know what to say. He knows your heart. You may not have the flowery language. That's fine. Here's what you say. Something like this. God, I know I'm a sinner. I've sinned against you. I'm sorry. Please forgive me. Please save me. Become Lord of my life. Now, again, that's not a magic formula. You say it in your own words. You talk to God. Put your trust in Him. Don't just say the words. You actually have to trust Him. Trust Christ alone for salvation. Why don't you stand with me as musicians come. And as you stand, I ask you to bow your heads and close your eyes. And with nobody looking around, 
I'd ask you to do business with God, honestly. I'd be happy to talk to you after the service. I'm just going to tell you, no matter what I say to you, your business isn't with me, it's with God. Because our sin has separated us from God, we have violated His commands, we have broken His law, we have rebelled against Him, we have shaken our fist in His face, as it were, We have rejected Him. There's enmity between us and Him. We're God's enemies. It's not that when we get saved, it's not that God's made right with us. We get made right with God. He's the one that's in the right, not us. And even right where you are, put your faith in Christ. Believe on the Lord Jesus for salvation. that death whenever that is maybe sooner for some of us than others but it's not long for any of us at that point there is no other chance Heavenly Father we thank you for your amazing grace they'll save a wretch like us it's like me and God we thank you that you would reach down that you would condescend to um, to save sinners that are in rebellion against you that, that, that hate you that run from you that spurn your grace that reject your son and yet you still extend that offer of mercy like that father and the prodigal son, that you, you welcome us if we'll come home. And Lord, if there's somebody that's hearing me today that's never accepted Christ as their Savior, Lord, I pray that you would help them to put their faith in you. We know it's an act of mercy on your part that you will save a sinner like me and like them. And God, we pray that if somebody needs to do that, that they would do that today. And Lord, for those of us who have done that, thank you that you have saved us. And God, I pray that you'd help us to be faithful to uh, share the good news in life and with our lips. In Jesus' name, amen.